The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. I'll begin the same way uh, I've been beginning my opening remarks the last two nights. Shout out to all the workers on strike right now, all the workers at John Deere, all the workers at Kellogg's, all the workers uh, at uh, California nurses and other nurses that are on strike right now. Uh, Shout out to you and shout out to all the people who are doing solidarity work with those working people that are on strike. If you are driving by a picket line, be sure to honk your horn, be sure to wave, be sure to go and get those folks some coffee, be sure to go and give them a thumbs up and let them know you're on their side. Uh, It's us against the bosses. It is Striketober and uh, be be sure to give your solidarity to the working families, especially those working families at John Deere who are on the brink, brink of losing their healthcare as the bosses uh, drive further to to cry and crush their union. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. uh, Shout out to them. And shout out to Alex Saab, a hero, an individual, a wealthy man who put everything on the line to do business as a diplomat for Venezuela. At a time, the U.S. imperialists were trying to crush Venezuela and trying to crush Iran. Alex Saab is a diplomat, he's not even Venezuelan, Colombian, got on an airplane as a diplomat of Venezuela to go to Iran to make a deal so that Iran could send food to Venezuela. And when that plane uh, landed in Cape Verde, the U.S. imperialists grabbed him off the plane, held him, Cape Verde authorities, and now extradited him back to the United States. He is in a prison cell right now in Miami, and he should be free, and he will be free. The people of the world are going to not let this case go. Uh, Alex Saab is the Georgi Dimitrov of our time. Do you know who Georgi Dimitrov was? Georgi Dimitrov was a communist from Bulgaria who was happened to be in Germany. And the Nazis grabbed him and tried to say that he was the mastermind behind the burning of the Reichstag. And all over the world, communists and revolutionaries and anti-Nazi, anti-fascist activists protested and they said, free Georgi Dimitrov, free Georgi Dimitrov. And when Georgi Dimitrov got his day in court, he tripped up Goering in his testimony. When Goering was on the test, he was representing himself not even in his own native language, in German. And he tripped up and humiliated Hermann Goering, the Nazi, on the witness stand. And the Soviet Union was demanding that, uh, that they free, free Dimitrov. And so as mighty as the Nazi state claimed to be, as powerful as they claimed to be, as anti-communist as they claimed to be, the Nazi state was humiliated before the whole world and forced to release Georgi Dimitrov. And Georgi Dimitrov was freed by a global anti-imperialist people's movement against the Nazis. And the Nazis were forced to release Georgi Dimitrov, and he became the hero, the hero of the global popular front against fascism. Georgi Dimitrov gave the 1935 speech at the Seventh World Congress of the Communist International, reorienting the international communist movement, to build a popular front against fascism. You can read the speeches of Georgi Dimitrov. 
Ah, that was, that was what happened. Dimitrov was freed by a global populist movement, global anti-fascist progressive movement, and the fascists of today, the imperialist murderers of today are the Wall Street money sharks, the Silicon Valley fascist managerial social engineering elite, uh, the Wall Street imperialists, and they have grabbed Alex Saab someone who risked everything, a wealthy man who risked everything to help the people of Venezuela. And so it is the duty of all progressive-minded people to demand once again and relentlessly, without stopping, that Alex Saab be freed. And this is this is getting bigger, folks. You really, you don't know how big this is. I'm going to get, I know you've been hearing about Alex Saab for three days in a row. You've been hearing Saab stories from me. <laughs> you don't want to hear any more Saab stories, but but you've been hearing me talk about Alex Saab, and uh, and I will tell you that uh, I have I have seen the pictures, folks. There are posters going up in Texas, Texas, you know, on college campuses, downtown areas, in major cities in Texas. There are free Alex Saab posters being put up. There are free Alex Saab posters being put up in Chicago right now. There are free Alex Saab posters being put up in California right now, in Minneapolis right now. There are posters in Manhattan. There are demonstrations. And all over this country, all kinds of people are protesting to free Alex Saab. Hands off Venezuela. Hands off Venezuela. Angriest ever in your life. Uh, Hands off Venezuela. Let let Iran and Venezuela and all the 28 countries, 29 countries the United States has done business with, um, you know, uh, and and let them all, let the 29 countries sanctioned by the United States, let them live, let them do business, end the economic warfare. And that, that was what I wanted to get out of the way. But the focus of my remarks tonight is actually going to be on something. Well, not the focus of my remarks, but the opening of my remarks tonight is going to be something that was said today. Something that was said today that I am sure U.S. mainstream media has not told you about. It's not gotten a lot of play in American mainstream media. But a very important person on the global stage, a very important international figure, made the following comment today. This is what was said today by a very important world leader. Quote, the socioeconomic problems facing humankind have worsened to the point where in the past they would trigger worldwide shocks such as world wars or bloody social cataclysms. Everywhere, everyone is saying that the current model of capitalism which underlies the social structure in the overwhelming majority of countries has run its course and no longer offers a solution to a host of increasingly tangled differences. Everywhere, even in the richest countries and regions, the uneven distribution of material wealth has exacerbated inequality, primarily inequality of opportunities, both within individual societies and at the international level. Who said that? Who said that? Who said that? Bernie Sanders? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? 
Jabba the Vosh, Skippy the Bear, Jeremy Corbin. No. One Pope Francis. Those were the words of Vladimir Putin, the president of the Russian Federation. He said them at the Valdi Discussion Club today. And U.S. media will work very, very hard to make sure you never, never find out that he said that. But he, that is what he said. Go to the website of the Valdi Discussion Club. It's a think tank in Russia that I have actually been inside of. I attended the Valdi Discussion Club in 2017. Got to listen to Putin. Got to listen to Jack Ma. Got to listen to Ahmed Chalabi. Russian President Vladimir Putin said that today at the Valdi Discussion Club. And that is something that you will not hear in mainstream U.S. media. But Russian President Vladimir Putin is critical of capitalism. He's critical of free market policies. He is not a communist. Why did the styles, can you explain the point of the lower level of developing lower level of struggles, the economic higher levels of struggles? I'm not sure what that means. Levels, struggle, higher levels of struggle. Uh, Russia-China relations. Just writing down the super chats. But those were the words of Russian President Vladimir Putin. He said those words today. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, he probably represents a very big, big percentage of public opinion in Russia when he says that. You know, Russia has a very strong communist party. Uh, Putin is not a member of it, and he's not a communist. Uh, but within Russia, uh, there is also uh, a big Russian nationalist movement that is critical of capitalism. Um, there's a lot of nostalgia for the Soviet Union, a lot of pride in the victory and the defeat of the Nazis in the Second World War. And they tried free market capitalism in Russia during the 90s. A lot of people don't realize this, but the Soviet Union fell. And the Soviet Union, according to everything that we've been taught in the United States, should have made Russia super rich, right? They were communists before, and everyone knows communism doesn't work. And they were communists, and then they adopted the free market, and they privatized all the industries, and they sold off the state-run farms, and they let American corporations come in there and invest and do business, and British corporations like British Petroleum and BP and Hermitage Capital Management were all in there doing business. And it should have just been paradise for Russia, right? I mean, that's that's what capitalism leads to, right? And it got so crazy in the 1990s that uh, at some points the Russian government couldn't even collect taxes during the 1990s. Did you know this? That 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 these private corporations had bigger militaries than the government at some points, and they would just refuse to pay taxes. The government would say, "Hey, you owe us taxes," and they'd be like, "Yeah, <laughs> try to make us." That's how how capitalist it was, right? I mean, it's it's like Stefan Molyneux's fantasy come true, right? The, the government can't collect taxes, right? It's, it was a Ron Paul scenario like you wouldn't believe. It was free market, unregulated capitalism. People were being scammed out of their money. They had, you know, scams where, you know, people would be, you know, you know there'd be ads in the newspaper to invest your money and they'd just run off with your money. 
Uh, you know, all kinds of people lost their retirement pensions, uh, you know, all the social networks that people depended on, all these people who'd had guaranteed jobs, guaranteed health care, were left out to dry. It was a nightmare. And the life expectancy went down. And the rate of sex trafficking and human trafficking went up. And furthermore, in addition to that, heroin addiction went through the roof. And the population of Russia, actually uh, from 1996 to 2006, I believe, the population of Russia decreased by about 10%. Uh, you know, people either leaving the country or dying. Uh, you know, and the, the, the rate of death, uh, you know, of, of suicides, of, of um, you know, economic, uh, you know, of, of drug addiction, uh, you know, I mean, of organized crime-related violence. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a nightmare. Right? Russia tried free market capitalism in the 1990s. Boris Yeltsin was the president of Russia, and Boris Yeltsin was a good buddy of Bill Clinton. And I actually was also in the room when U.S. Senator Bill Bradley described what it was like to go over to Russia with Bill Clinton during the 1990s, when Bill Clinton uh, was in Russia with with. Boris Yeltsin and Bill Bradley, U.S. Senator Bill Bradley said the Clinton administration used to joke. They used to say, let's go stuff some more shit down Boris Yeltsin's throat. And they made a joke out of how much they were just destroying the country. They took pleasure, gleeful pleasure in destroying Russia. So many people were devastated and destroyed. It was an absolute economic catastrophe. It was a nightmare. What was imposed on Russia by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and Jeffrey Sachs and George Soros and the neoliberal free market economists in the 1990s was a nightmare. If you don't believe me, you can go read Naomi Klein and her book, The Shock Doctrine. You can go and read Read uh, the book Europe Since 1989, A History of Neoliberalism by Philip Thayer. That's a very good book as well. The facts speak for themselves. Free market libertarian policies in Russia in the 1990s were a nightmare. It wrecked the country. All of this, we've been told, the myth of austerity is this. Libertarians believe that you can cut your way into economic growth, right? We have one apple, and then you have two apples. You add them together, you get three apples, right? Now, if you have three apples, and you take two apples away, you only have one apple left, and one is less than three. Does everyone agree with that? One is less than three. If you subtract, if you subtract, you get less than what you started with. Well, if you think that, you're not a libertarian. Because libertarians believe that you can magically cut your way into growth. That if you cut the jobs of government workers, if you cut food subsidies like food stamps, if you cut the minimum wage and get rid of the minimum wage so employers can pay whatever they feel like paying, somehow, magically, everybody gets rich. That's what libertarians believe. 
And it is one of the stupidest things I have ever heard. And people believe it. This is not real capitalism. If we just had a real capitalist society, it's the dumbest, dumbest perspective ever. Watch my debate with Stefan Molyneux, right? Somehow, somehow you can, you know, you can, you can cut your way into economic growth. And that's what they tried to do in Russia in the 1990s. And it wrecked the economy. And then, starting in 1999, they started moving in the other direction. And how did they move in the other direction? Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin was elected. And Putin had written an academic dissertation about a theory of how to fix Russia's economy. And that theory was about using two state-run energy corporations, Gazprom and Rosneft. And it was about using a state-controlled oil company, Rosneft, and a state-controlled natural gas company, Gazprom, to reboot the economy of Russia. And that's what they did. They reasserted state control over natural gas and oil and centered the economy once around, once again around the government. And they started making lots of money with oil and gas. It kind of helped that George W. Bush invaded Iraq and blew Iraq to bits because that shot the oil prices high. Right During the Bush years, we have some of the oil highest oil prices in history, $120 a barrel. The oil prices are going up and up and up, and Russia's raking in more and more revenue. And so with government revenue, they changed Russian society. And they fixed all the damage that free market libertarian policies had, had created. Uh, they, they rebuilt the farming sector. That's one of the most recent things uh, that they, they've done. They rebuilt the farming sector. Um, they, they rebuilt the national industries. You know, they have titanium industries in Russia. They've got a steel industry. They, you know, they rebuilt their industries. And by about 2006, the industrial output of Russia was at Soviet levels, um, right? Um, Right. Um, all right. CFR links to Bilderberg's trilateral. Um, and it was state control, reasserting state control over the economy that largely, largely fixed Russia's economy. Living standards went up, wages increased, um, and that was largely due to state ownership. So, you know, the history of Russia is a pretty strong argument against libertarian free market policies. It's with socialism that Russia became an industrial superpower to begin with. The five-year economic plans of Stalin, they built at that point the largest hydroelectrical power plant in the world, the Dnieper Dam in Ukraine. Uh, they industrialized, built a modern steel industry. They wiped out illiteracy in Russia. They built modern university systems. They built high, you know, trains all across Russia. Um, they, they, you know, built, uh, they, they built, you know, they, they had the films of Sergei Eisenstein. They had the music of Shostakovich. What was going on in the Soviet Union during the 1930s was a marvel to the world. All kinds of great intellectuals, W.E.B. Du Bois, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, Albert Einstein, um, they went to the Soviet Union and they were 
amazed with what, what they saw. H.G. Wells, go and read H.G. Wells' interview with Stalin. You know, H.G. Wells interviewed Stalin. Go and read that interview. Um, you know, all right. Putin. Imperialism. Socialism. Go, go read H.G. Wells' interview with Stalin. And the whole world was marveling at what the Soviet Union was doing in the 1930s. The five-year economic plans, read what Time Magazine wrote about them, read what the New York Times was saying about them. I mean, it, they built a huge modern educational system. It was quite amazing what the Soviet Union was achieving in the 1930s. They never talk about this, right? They never talk about how a, a, an impoverished agrarian society became a superpower, an industrial powerhouse overnight, practically. I mean, in just a few years, the Soviet Union was speeding ahead because they had socialism. They had a state centrally planned economy. Um, and then they defeated the Nazi invaders and they rebuilt Eastern Europe. And all across Eastern Europe with Soviet aid, you saw Romania build new universities and wipe out illiteracy and industrialize, Czechoslovakia, Poland, electrification of so many parts of the country uh, of Eastern Europe. And I mean, it was amazing. And then they invented space travel. Right? The first cell, cell phone, the first mobile phone was patented in the Soviet Union in 1957. Did you know that? Socialism doesn't invent anything, Caleb. No one's ever invented anything in socialism. I'm sorry. The AK-47 rifle, the most widely used military firearm in the world, uh, was invented in the Soviet Union. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, we can go down the line of their achievements. LED lights were invented in the Soviet Union. I mean, I mean, the amount of technological progress, economic development that the Soviet state had in the 1930s, 1950s, and 60s it was very big. The world had never seen anything like that. So anyone who tries to tell you socialism doesn't work, they don't know what they're talking about. And then when the Soviet Union fell, they tried free market capitalism, and that wrecked the country. And then they fixed it by reasserting state control over energy markets and, and you know, assert, you know, subsidizing major industries, et cetera. So this notion that, that capitalism is the answer, you look at the economic history of Russia, it's like 19, you know, they have the revolution, 1928, start building socialism, goes up, right? World War II, continue building socialism, goes up, right? Growth, 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 growth. Oh, here comes the capitalism. Oh, Putin comes in and reasserts government control, and then it continues to go up. It's like, I'm sorry, how, how does anyone look at that and think that, that capitalism and free markets is the answer? I don't know how anyone looks at the history of Russia from 1928 to now and says, oh, the answer is we got to privatize everything. The answer is get the government's hands off. The answer is, you know, you know, the virtue of selfishness. Greed is good. You know, we can't have the state plan anything. We can't organize the economy to serve public good. I mean, libertarianism is, is a fantasy. It is a complete and utter fantasy. I don't know how people, I mean, I, I'm just telling you the basic history of Russia, economically speaking, um, right? With socialism, they industrialized and became a superpower. Then they had World War II. Then they rebuilt it all and continued industrializing and being a superpower. And then they had capitalism and it wrecked the place. 
And then Putin came in and reasserted government control over major industries and over the, uh, I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm waiting for the part where, where that somehow shows socialism doesn't work. But the Soviet Union fell, therefore, so there, yeah, therefore socialism doesn't work. I mean, this is, I don't know how these people how these people can say this. I mean, some things are true and some things are not, but it's like, I mean, people, they just don't want to acknowledge the reality. They don't want to acknowledge the reality. They look at this and they just, uh, they just say, well, I can't, you know, I have to, it, it's like, it's, it's really a great example of like the emperor has no clothes, right? You ever hear this? This is a, an old parable, right? There's some emperor and he hires a very, a very expensive tailor to, you know, to make clothes for him. And this tailor who weaves him his clothes is a con artist. And he says, oh, I've, I've weaved you clothes, but they're invisible. No one can see them. So the emperor is walking around naked. But it's the emperor. And the emperor's walking around saying, oh, look how great my new clothes are. And everyone's so scared of the emperor because he's the emperor. They play along and they pretend he has clothes because, oh, they don't want to be the one to tell the emperor that he's naked, right? And that's how it is. You go to college, right? You know, you'll take economics and they'll show you the economics of Russia. With socialism, became a superpower. With capitalism, crashed and burned. Putin came in, reasserted government control. Things got better. And they'll look at that and, and everyone, it's like the emperor has no clothes. They all look at it and they say, oh, communism failed. They're so the social conformity, the thought conformity is so extreme. People are so afraid, so afraid of acknowledging this basic reality um, that socialism has been economically successful, that China, before the Communist Party came in, dirt poor, after the Communist Party came in, now it's the second largest economy in the world. People are just so scared of acknowledging this basic reality. They are just so desperate to keep believing what everyone else believes, to not think for themselves, you know, in this society where we think for ourselves, right? They're so desperate to just keep believing the mythology, the mythology of the 20th century, um, that they that they they do this. And everywhere we've seen libertarian economic policies applied, it's been a disaster. Women, all right, women. It's been a disaster. I mean, everywhere we've seen libertarian economic, I wrote it down, Kevin. Every, everywhere we've seen libertarian economics put into practice, it's been a disaster. They had neoliberalism in South and Central America uh, during the 19, uh, 1980s and 90s, especially after the fall of the Soviet USSR, right? Uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, they escalated it, but it was, you know, at, you know Pinochet's Chile, um, you know, they implemented free market reforms. It was a disaster. A decade later in Argentina, they implemented free market reforms and it was a disaster. And then, you know, in the, in the late 80s, Bolivia and, and then later, I mean, and all across Latin America, South America, Central America, they implemented free market reforms and it was, it was a disaster in country after country after country. It was a disaster. Um, and, uh, and yet people just, they, oh, well, it wasn't real capitalism. It just wasn't real capitalism. I mean, look. With socialism, Libya was the most prosperous country in Africa. And now that it has joined the global free trade, free market system, um, now Libya is 
wrecked, right? Libertarians will point to pre-capitalist economies like medieval Iceland to prove free markets work. That's that's ridiculous. I mean, that's I don't even know where to begin with that. Libertarians don't know what capitalism is. I, I've had libertarians say that capitalism started in the Roman Empire because there was currency. You know, capitalism is the private ownership of the means of production. It's when the banks and the factories and the mean the centers of economic power function in order to make profits for private owners. Capitalism is a system of profits in command. Frederick Engels said that capitalism is preliminary transformation into capital. Under capitalism, the means of production only function as preliminary transformation into capital. What about people who accuse China of being wealthy due to market communism as capitalist markets help? Well, the, that argument, I'll just answer that now. I'll just answer that right now, right? Analysis, all right, right? Legacy, Soviet. I'll just answer that now because I, I hear that one a lot. Okay, and and I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna libertarianism a cult. Um, I hear that one a lot. Um, and here's what you have to whenever someone says that. Well, China's China's wealthy because they're capitalist. Oh boy, they're just coming in with the super chats here. Um, patriotic socialism, Superman. All right. Man, country music. All right. Writing them all down. I thank you for the super chats. I just got to catch up here. So when someone tries to tell you that China got wealthier because they were capitalist, it's a lot like this. All right. So imagine that it's winter time and you are cold in your bedroom. You're cold in your bedroom. It's winter time. So you go and you turn on the heat. Right? That makes sense. Right? It was cold in your bedroom. So you went and turned on the heat. Does that prove you should light your bedroom on fire? Because that's what they're arguing. China adjusted its socialist system. The amount of state control still today in China's economy is massive. The government in China controls the banks. The government in China has a five-year economic plan. There are huge state-owned enterprises. The rate of state ownership in China is much higher than Venezuela, much higher than Nicaragua. There are a huge amount of state and government ownership, and even private corporations are controlled by the state in China. In fact, the biggest corporations in China, like Huawei Technologies, were built by the government. They are private companies, but they exist because the military and the government said, you know, we really ought to have a private corporation. And they made it happen, right? That, that these huge corporations in China, many of them only exist because a government bureaucrat said, we need a huge corporation to do something that will attract foreign investment. And so they made it, okay? The amount of state ownership in China is massive. But yes, it is not a Soviet-style economy. Yes, there is a market sector. Yes, there's a lot of foreign investment. Yes, there's a lot of wealth inequality. Yes, there are a lot of private firms. But arguing that somehow the fact that when China adjusted its socialist system in 1978 with the reform and opening up, that means that, that free market privatizations and having no government ownership is the answer is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. 
It's ridiculous that, yes, China adjusted its socialist system, but it maintained a huge amount of state ownership, a huge amount of state control. And even today, there is a huge amount of government control and a huge amount of government monitoring and regulation and, and, and control of the economy. So arguing that somehow, that somehow, because China adjusted its socialist system in 1978 to be a little more market-oriented, that means that markets are always the answer is ridiculous, right? Again, if you're in your room and it's cold and you turn the heat on, that doesn't prove that you should light your bedroom on fire because more heat is always the answer. No, they tweaked their socialist system. That's it, right? And the amount of government ownership in China, using China as an example of proof that capitalism is good, that is that is. So ridiculous. I mean, I'm sorry, these people, these are the same idiots who think that income tax is communism, right? They go and pay income tax and they think, oh, we almost got full communism. I had to pay 5% income tax. But then they look at China with government-run banks, government-run industries, government control over the private sector, you know, corporations created by the government, five-year economic plans, and they go, oh, it's capitalist. They are so they are so determined to believe what they want to believe, and I hear this from intelligent people, intelligent people. I, I you know, um, you know. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much. I, I have talked with Sabi Sabs from Ked, Fred Hampton Leftist. I'd be happy to talk with somebody else from that that group. But you know, I mean, they are so determined to believe this. They are just so determined to believe that capitalism is the answer. They can look at China with its huge amount of state and government control and go, oh, well, it's only rich. It only works because they're capitalist. I mean, these people just see what they want to see. And it's it's obnoxious. It is genuinely, deeply obnoxious to, to watch. These people, they really, they really, they really just don't want to see reality for what it is. So I just wanted to highlight those comments from Russian President Vladimir Putin because I thought they're very important comments that he made today. He talked about all kinds of stuff. He talked about the importance of the traditional family. Uh, he talked about the pandemic. He talked about all kinds of stuff. And you know, go watch Vladimir Putin's Baldy Discussion Club speech he gave. This, you know, it was a big Q and A afterwards. At one point uh, during the Q and A, um, he was confronted by this Nobel Prize winner. Uh, who was was angry about Russian um, Russian media being registered as as foreign agents? And he pointed out, he said, "Look, he said, you know, that's simply about transparency and where they're getting their funding." Um, he said, "But you know, in the United States, uh, you know, RT has been harassed and Sputnik has been harassed, and they've threatened to jail people for five years. They're not threatening to jail people over there." Right. But yeah, there's a lot of media in Russia that gets funded by the United States. And so they just they pointed out that's it. Right. Whereas here in the United States, you know, they they've gone after, you know, they threatened in incarceration. You know, they I mean, it's like they've had the FBI harass people and such. So, you know, the idea that uh, that somehow, you know, Putin's being bad because they just put a label on some people that are basically doing, you know, destabilization propaganda for the U.S. government. I mean, you know, watch that clip. I mean, it, it's 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 pretty wild, you know, um, and uh you know, Putin gave a very good answer uh, when confronted by that Nobel Prize guy, right? And it's like compared to compared to what the USA is doing to Russian media, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think that that you know, I mean, they tolerate all kinds of people in Russia that are pro 
pro-U.S. and anti-anti-Russian. They they tolerate all kinds of people that are doing that. You know, there's all kinds of bloggers and and people like that that are trying to trying to destabilize Russia. That want to bring the the Boris Yeltsin years back. They want to bring free market neoliberal capitalism back to Russia. There's a lot of people doing that over there. And don't you believe? Don't deny for a second that the U.S. government isn't handing out money to them and promoting them. And this this Navalny creep. Right, Vosh's hero, Alexei Navalny, a white nationalist who compared the people living in Russia's caucus regions to uh, to cockroaches, uh, you know, a, a, a neo-Nazi, right? And that's that's the hero uh, of the Russian opposition. U.S. media loves him, being, even though he's a a fascist and a Nazi and full of of bigotry. U.S. media loves this guy, um, so it just shows you how hypocritical. All of this uh, really is, but um, but yeah, I just I wanted to highlight these comments from Russian President Vladimir Putin. Wanted to talk about the delusions of people who believe in capitalism because I this is a recurring theme on these lives, and I, I but it just has to be said. I am so genuinely annoyed with people who buy into this communism failed stuff. People who buy into this oh capitalism always makes country richer stuff. I'm sorry. I look at the historical rush record. Before the communists, Russia was poor. After the communists, Russia was a superpower. The 1990s, free market policies wrecked Russia. How did Russia fix it? State control. Before the communists came in, China was dirt poor. After the communists, China is a superpower, right? When when, when Islamic socialism is running Libya, it's the most prosperous country in Africa. When capitalism is running Libya. It is dirt poor and people are drowning in the Mediterranean trying to get out. Haiti, free market capitalist country, wrecked, mass poverty, mass hunger, lack of access to healthcare, people eating dirt mixed with oil, desperate poor poverty. Cuba, socialist country, highest life expectancy in Latin America, lower, uh, higher life expectancy, lower infant mortality rate than the United States. Uh, a medical system that's loved by the entire world. Compare Cuba to Haiti. Compare Cuba to the Dominican Republic. Compare Cuba to Jamaica. I mean, it's just, give me a break. I don't know how these people, I mean, they, no, they, no, it just has to be true. It just has to be true. Um, all right, CIA plots. Right. Just has to be true. Writing it down. Writing it down. I mean, these people, I mean, they just, they, it has to be true. No, no, no. It has to be true. Has to be true. Has to be true. And then, and then here's another classic. While we're on it, I'll just, I'll just finish up by going through this one. This is a great one. To prove that communism is bad, they say, look at North Korea, look at South Korea. Right. And they even, uh, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld showed a map where it was like at night and look at all the lights in South Korea, look at North Korea. Well, there's, there's a number of lies in that argument, too. First of all, North Korea's economy was very strong, right? Writing it down. North Korea's economy was very strong until the fall of the Soviet Union. So the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, there was a huge amount of economic growth in North Korea. And in fact, there is a BBC article that I frequently quote. And I'll show you where BBC talked about how they were having economic miracles in the 70s and 80s. The rate of growth, the rate of industrial expansion in North Korea was very high. After the fall of the Soviet Union, 
Uh, their food production system came to a grinding halt because of U.S. sanctions and the petrodollar, and that wrecked their economy. And they didn't have the Soviet Union to trade with anymore. The Soviet Union bought coal from them. You know, Biden stepped down. Um, the Soviet Union, you know, um, couldn't buy coal from them anymore, and they were isolated from the U.S. economy, from the global economy. They were, you know, sanctioned and basically cut off from the world, and so their economy suffered. But South Korea, all that economic growth in South Korea is not due to free market policies. Park Chung-hee, the dictator of South Korea, did not practice libertarian free market economics. And again, these libertarians are such liars. They'll be like, oh, South Korea is capitalist. Well, yeah, South Korea is capitalist. But South Korea did not industrialize with free market policies by any means. Um, right? American... Hawkish. China. Cruise. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, but it's like the policies, um, you know, that Park Chung-hee, I mean, POSCO, the steel industry of South Korea, was built by the government. It was a state-controlled corporation. Uh, and it was, you know, it was built when the United States forced Japan to loan millions of dollars to South Korea and the government set it up. Most of the big corporations in South Korea were set up by the state, by the government um, and it, the, the military of South Korea and the state. And there is a huge amount of government control and government you know, oversight in the South Korean economy, even up to today. But at the period that South Korea was rapidly industrializing in the 70s and 80s, the amount of state and government control over South Korea's economy was massive. It was an Asian tiger country, right? It was, it was, it was very much having government control. And you had this military junta, a Bonapartist military regime. Um, all right. Um, you know, um, and a Bonapartist military regime. Uh, that was was it was overseeing you know growth um, and I mean it was it was not free market policies and the same for Taiwan and the same for Singapore and the same for the same for Hong Kong and it's like so many of these countries that that libertarians will point to and say oh they're a great example of capitalism the amount of government control is is massive right okay you know yes it's not a socialist society it's like a state capitalist kind of society but it's I mean, it's not an argument for privatize everything. I mean, the amount of lying that goes on. You know, someone mentioned John Stossel in the comments. I remember this. You know, John Stossel, I remember, you know, in school watching some piece that he made where he was arguing that Hong Kong, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it was, it, he was talking about U.S. education being bad. I remember this. U.S. education is bad and it's so much, it, and European education is so much better. And then, uh, you know, kind of gloss, you know, arguing that therefore we need to privatize schools. Well, I'm sorry, the amount of government involvement in schools in Europe is way more. So that's not, that doesn't follow, right? Um, and then he's arguing that, oh, you know, we have over, it's too hard to start a business in the United States. Hong Kong is a great example of, you know, a free market. Well, no, the amount of government control in Hong Kong is, is massive as well. And government stimulus, I mean, it's, it's just it's just so much deception and lying, right? I mean, it's just okay. You know, you compare you compare the United States, which is probably one of the most free market and libertarian countries in the entire Western world, to countries where there's more state ownership, and say, oh, it's not as it's better in these other countries. That's not that doesn't follow. 
It does not compute. But again, people really want to believe this. People really want to believe this. They just, this is what they have to believe. They cannot question uh, the, the, the ruling ideology of the society. They're, they're conformists. They're weak and they're afraid. Singapore and South Korea are economically protectionist, just saying. They're protectionist too. Yes, there's heavy tariffs and such, but they also, the government built the industries there. I mean, the amount of control, state control in Singapore, the amount of state control in South Korea, even now, I mean, especially in the 80s, I mean, I'm sorry, libertarianism. Libertarians don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. And and then they, you know, whenever you confront them with this, they just fall back on, well, that's not real capitalism. It's like, okay, but but why all the lying then? Right? So much of the of the economic ideas that libertarians churn out are just full of, you know, deceptive lies. They play off people's ignorance. You know, saying that South Korea has proved that free market policies are good, that's called lying. Right, saying that uh, that you know the Soviet Union never had a single amount of economic success—that's called lying. Uh, you know, saying that you know that China you know is a free market economy—that's called lying. Libertarians lie. They lie. Advocates of free market libertarian capitalism lie, 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 lie. I mean, they just lie over and over and over again. I'm sitting here. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm sitting here as a, um, as a, as a, you know, a writer and a, somebody with, you know, I mean, I've been to college for a few years and I mean, I know some stuff, but it's like, I, I'm, I'm just pointing to basic facts that like, they just play off people's ignorance and it's the emperor has no clothes. This is what the, you know, the, the free market think tanks pay these economic people to come up with. This is what people want to believe because they don't, they want to conform. They don't want to question the status quo. I'm sorry, free market policies, free market policies don't lead to economic growth. If you have three apples and you take away two, you have one and one is less than three. You cannot cut your way into economic growth. You cannot cut your way into economic growth. You cannot cut your way in to economic growth. You can't cut your way into economic growth. You cannot cut your way into economic growth. Libertarianism is, is an idiotic ideology because it believes that somehow you can cut your way into economic growth. And our country has been destroyed by libertarianism. They've been cutting schools. They've been cutting the jobs of government employees. They've been cutting social programs. We have municipalities in 27 different states who have unpaved roads, unpaved the roads, unpaved the roads because, because the government budget can't afford it, right? And all across this country, our, our public sector of the economy is crumbling. Our water is not being properly purified. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it is infuriating what is going on. Uh, and we have, we've, we've, we've done all kinds of stupid libertarian experiments. We have prisons for profit, right? Because it's always better if the government doesn't do it, <laughs> right? So why not have private prisons and lock people in jail? That, what could possibly go wrong? Oh, we have private military contractors, right? Where instead of having like an army, uh, we just, we hire private corporations that profit from war. What could possibly go wrong with that? Schools for profit, charter schools, yeah, they don't do any better than the public schools. And, you know, they sometimes they just like close down in the middle of the year and leave kids without a school to go to. Well, what could ever go wrong with that? Everybody knows it's the libertarian ideology. I mean, it's 
It's, it's shocking to me. We have been experimenting with libertarianism. They always say, well, communism failed. L libertarianism has failed. I don't even know what that means. Um, I don't even know what that means, Red Precarian. I'm sorry to hear about Alabama, but uh, you know, I, I mean, libertarianism has been failing and failing and failing. Our roads are falling apart. I, I, I mean, our living standard is decreasing. You know, predatory lending. Uh, you know, you know, you know, private healthcare and private uh, pharmaceutical companies overprescribing opioids. How many? How long are we going to keep doing this? Right? I mean, we we've given them the chance. Right? We've been doing libertarianism here since the mid seventies. Right, since at least you know the you know the the downfall of Richard Nixon, every president we've had has been a libertarian, has been a believer in neoliberal economics. Right, they've said you know get the government off our backs. Right, Carter was all of his people were from the Trilateral Commission, and you know he brought in Paul Volcker, got rid of all the money lending regulations, and got you know, and then we had Reagan get the government off our backs, and then we had Bill Clinton who got rid of welfare as we know it and signed the free trade NAFTA deal. And, and after that, we had the Bush administration that really pushed charter schools and schools for profit and military contractors. And after that, we had Barack Obama. Uh, and what did he do? Uh, you know, I mean, same kind of thing, right? You know, privatizations, cutbacks. And, and then we had Trump and he did the same thing. And he put a libertarian in charge of the, of the, of the uh, Department of Education, Betsy DeVos, the charter school queen. And she proceeded to root, you know, you know, you know, root out the economy and deregulation. We've been doing this for years. Libertarianism has been the ruling ideology of the United States for at least, you know, at least since the downfall of Richard Nixon. And the country has been falling apart. The country has been falling apart. And I think we need to fight for a government of action that will fight for working families. The banks, factories, and industries of the United States should be organized to serve public good, not the profits of a few. We need a national mobilization to rebuild the United States of America, new high-speed railway, new schools, new hospitals, new universities, new water treatment facilities, right? New, new infrastructure for America. We need something that makes Roosevelt's uh, Works Progress Administration look almost like, uh, like child's play. The other day, someone was telling me about how Biden is on there just telling everyone, lower your expectations with my infrastructure plan. Lower your expectations with the infrastructure plan. Well, I don't say lower our expectations. I say we need popular will. Mobilize the public to go out and build. Force it to happen. Imagine, you know, if Biden really wanted to rebuild the United States of America with an infrastructure plan, I'll tell you what he would do. He would call all of his supporters out into the streets right now. He would call up all the unions that supported him. He would call up all the, the local and he would have them go and protest like, like crazy. And he would call them out into the streets. But he's not going to do that. He's Sleepy Joe. He's not going to do that. And he doesn't really want to challenge capitalist power. But we need a government that would rebuild the United States of America with a massive jobs program, a massive program of reconstruction. We need public ownership of our natural resources. We need public ownership and planning of the assigning of credit, a state monopoly on banking. And we need to create an economic bill of rights, the right to housing, the right to jobs, the right to education. That is the four-point economic plan of the Center for Political Innovation. And I'm for it. And I am for it. So there you go. That is what we believe. CPIUSA.org, a socialist think tank bringing socialism to.
to your community. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. What a lovely day it is, folks. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell, and now is the time for me to do the roll call. Names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. Names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. All right. Dylan in California. Shout out to you. Nate in Chicago. Very good. Montreal Chaya. Shout out to you. Good friend. Stephen in Riverside. Oh boy, here they come. Ben in Boulder. Kieran in San Diego, Zach B. in Richmond, VA, Cole in Calgary, Clyde Bank, Emma from Ontario, MacArthur Park in LA or Oakland, JT24, Mississippi, Carter in Duluth, Minnesota, Fort Lauderdale, Tushar, shout out to you, Tushar, all is well, Cleveland Pirate Alex, um, Run, uh, New Zealand, Auckland, New Zealand, Allen in Chicago, Giles in Cincinnati, Glasgow, West Virginia, Tampa, Florida, KCMO, Paris of the Plains, Kansas City, Missouri, Troy in New York, Zach from Seattle, Mindanao in Midwest, Olympia Logic, Jenny Lynn, shout out to you, Calgary, Canada, Temple City, Vladivostok. Wow, you're way far east there in Vladivostok, right? Glendale, California, Richmond, Virginia, Portland, Oregon, Io Hillary in New York, shout out to you, Andy in New Zealand, Pomona, California, Devon in Chicago. Mike in North Carolina, Dario and Carolyn in Brooklyn, shout out to you all, good friends of ours, Winston in St. Louis, right, Toronto, Canada, Vinicius from Brazil, uh, Detroit, Michigan, Joe in Washington, D.C., loves the show, oh, that's sweet, deep in the south, Deborah is back in Mexico, shout out to you, Deborah, good, good friend of the program, met you in California, uh, Nazaire from Los Angeles, Northern Michigan, Argentina, Rice from Australia, Martin in Ireland, uh, Melbourne in Australia, Dan Keating, shout out to you, Dan Keating, Little Falls, New Jersey, good friend of ours, Dan Keating, Mosin from Iran, Huntsville, Alabama, Finn in Duluth, Minnesota, Rougemont, North Carolina, John Witte in Houston, shout out to you, Omaha, that's an interesting, Omaha, Nebraska. Wow, all right, Yaya in Omaha, right? Ontario, Canada, David uh, David Rennie Hamilton, Solidarity from Naples, Florida, West Virginia, Rhode Island. David Fox, shout out to you in Bendigo, Australia. Shout out to you, David Fox. Uh, Nassau County, Char Char Darling, good friend of the program. We love you, Char Char Darling. I hope you had a good time with everyone. Um, the other night, Perth in Australia, Tony in Oregon coast, Cincinnati, Ohio, Ramsey R. Wow. We've got a great crowd. Helen in Melbourne. Wow. Helen, you're a great friend of the show. Good to have you here. Who else is with us tonight? It's like a reunion. Every time we do the show, it's like a group of friends getting back together. Thank you, Olympia. Thank you for telling me I did a good job. I really appreciate that animation. Uh, that's beautiful animation. And thank you. Arturo from Alaska. Who could forget Arturo from Alaska, right? You're always here on these streams. This is like, it's like a group of friends getting together. Jay Therapel, right? We're, we're just, we're always getting together. We're having a good time. We have our running jokes. We have our themes. Uh, creepiest fan interaction. I'm not going to answer that, Finn. Come on, man. 
Um, I'm not going to put down my fans. I love you guys. I love you guys. Why would I put one of you down and declare one of you to be creepy? I'm not going to do that. But anyway, gang's all here. Harold Sullivan is here from Florida, Minnesota, Minnesota, Anthony, Solidarity. This is is awesome. This is uh, awesome. David Fox says the Darth Vader from the Death Star is here, right? Well, Bomb, bomb. We used to do that. I, if, if Red Illuminati is watching, he goes back to Occupy Wall Street. That was the big joke at Occupy Wall Street. Uh, when the police would come with their riot gear and their visors on, uh, we would all, you know, sing the uh, Darth Vader theme song. They would, you know, the police would walk in with their, you know, their helmets and their visors and everyone would chant, bomb, what is it? What is it? Um, Bum, 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 bum. We would all do that while while they were walking in. That was like a running joke from Occupy Wall Street. So, right, it probably violates a copyright. Right, I should I should not sing any more of the song because that probably violates. You know, I'm going to get sued by John Williams. You know, he's going to come to my apartment and like confiscate uh, confiscate my book collection to retaliate for me. You know, plagiarizing, infringing on his his copyright from uh, from by singing singing two bars, you know, to tell a story from Occupy Wall Street. But anyway, Clarence from Utah. Shout out to you, Clarence. All right. Um, there you go. All right. Oh, oh, whoa. It's shaking, 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 shaking. All right. All right. All right. So now we got to answer the super chats. Book list of the 1930s to the 1970s. All right. So you just want some books on the history of socialism in the United States from the 1930s and 1970s. Books on the History of the 1930s, Labor's Untold Story uh, is a very good book. Uh, that's one of the best books on the history of the labor movement. Uh, you know, it leads up to the 1930s, talks about the rise of the CIO. Uh, it's by Herbert Marais, and I forget the other author's name. Very good book. Um, it's about, you know, the role of the Communist Party in the uh, labor movement in the United States. Um, uh, that's very good. Um, what else? Uh very good book, Brother Bill McKay. It's about the biography of the Communist Party leader who unionized the auto workers in uh, in Ford Motor Company. Bill McKay, that's very, very good. I recommend Bill, Brother Bill McKay. That's a great book. Um, what else? Um, it's by Philip Benoski. Uh, that's very good. What other books do I recommend? Um, I recommend... Um, um, Wow. What other books uh, on the 1930s? Well, we're on the 1930s. What books are good? You know, there's a British communist, um, uh, Wall Hannington, um, who wrote uh, Unemployed Struggles about the unemployment councils in Britain uh, that, that were organized, uh, you know, and how they organized the miners to march down to, to Britain to demand jo- to London to demand jobs from Scotland. That was a very good book about the communist organizing in the 1930s in Britain, the unemployed struggles. That was very good. Um, there, uh, there's, you know, a uh, red Chicago, uh, by Randy Stork, uh, is a history of the communist party of Chicago during the early 1930s. That's a very good book as well. Um, that's, that's very good. Um, you know, I mean, if you're looking for like actual source material, you know, Olympia logic mentioned towards Soviet America, that's very good. Um, you know, uh, why communism by Moisha Olgan, I recommend that a very good piece as well. Why communism by Moisha Olgan. So I guess then you want more communist history, um, you know, I mean, up into the 1960s, um, you know, there's a number of books that have been written about the new communist movement. Uh, there's a book called um, uh, Revolution in the Air, uh, Communists, uh, or what is it? Revolution in the Air, 60s Radicals Turned to Lenin, Mao, and Che. 
Uh, that's by Max Elbaum, and that's kind of an overview of the Maoist communist groups in the 1970s that existed. That's a very good book. I recommend that, uh, Revolution in the Air by Max Elbaum. Uh, then there's, um, there's, uh, there's Heavy Radicals, uh, the FBI's Secret War on America's Maoists, which kind of goes over the history of the Revolutionary Communist Party from the perspective of FBI infiltration and, you know, COINTELPRO documents that were released. That's very good. Uh, there's a book called Threat of Greatest Magnitude, which is about, uh, goes over the FBI's infiltration of the Communist Party USA and the Maoist groups in the 1970s. That's pretty good as well. Um, what else? Uh, what else is there? Um, probably one of the best communist history books I've ever read is called We Want Freedom, A Life in the Black Panther Party by Mumia Abu-Jamal. And it's an academic history of the Black Panthers mixed with his own personal experiences as someone who was a Black Panther in the 1970s. Um, so, you know, it's called We Want Freedom, A Life in the Black Panther Party by Mumia Abu-Jamal. That's very good. Um, I recommend that. Uh, that's a very good book. Uh, we Want Freedom, A Life in the Black Panther Party. Um, what else? Um, I would recommend um, uh, Detroit, I Do Mind Dying. Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, uh, which is called Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, A Study in Urban Revolution. And it's a history of the Maoist groups uh, that operated in Detroit during the 1970s. Ken Cockrell, um, Ken Cockrell, and um, who else? Uh, there were a couple others, right? Um, Wendy Thompson and others. There was a whole, you know, whole, it was called Wildcat Summer of 1974. And there was something called the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, DRUM. And that there was a huge amount of communist organizing in Detroit in the 1970s. I would recommend Detroit, I Do Mind Dying. Uh, that is a very good book. Um, if you want to know about the history of the Trotskyites and really labor history overall, I would recommend there's a four-part series called, it's the Teamster series by Farrell Dobbs, the Trotskyite. He wrote, you know, um, he wrote uh, Teamster Rebellion, Teamster what is it? Teamster Rebellion, Teamster Politics, uh, you know, Teamster Power and Teamster Bureaucracy. It's four books. It's a history of the, the role of the Trotskyists in the Teamsters Union. Um, that's a pretty good book. Um, and um, yeah, um, and um, I mean, you're just asking me off the top of my head for communist history books. I'm just naming them off. Um, um what other communist U.S. history books are there? Um, there's a lot of them, but that's what I've got so far. Um, but that's that's enough. I gave you a big long list. We got a lot more super chats to get through. Okay, the Netflix strike. I don't have a position. I mean, I don't want trans people to ever feel like they're not welcome, to ever feel ashamed of who they are, to ever be bullied. Um, you know. Um, but at the same time, I you know I don't know. I mean, is this what Netflix needs to be shut down over? I don't like Netflix. I'll be honest. I mean, seeing any strike at Netflix kind of makes me happy. I hate Nick's Netflix, but, you know, it's around a, a cultural issue and that, you know, people feel offended by some things that this comedian says. I haven't actually watched what Dave Chappelle actually said, but, you know, if he's making trans people feel like they're not welcome or feel like they, they should be ashamed of who they are, that's not good. You know, and so I, I sympathize with with trans people, and I don't want them to ever feel ashamed of who they are. 
But, and I also hate Netflix, but at the same time, you know, is this, I mean, you know, I think other people were saying stuff about, you know, what is this the issue to strike over? And I don't know. I just have no position and that's it. I have no position. So that's all I'm going to say about it. I really, I, I hate getting bogged down in that kind of thing. Right. At the end of the day, I, I don't really have a position. I mean, I don't know. Netflix needs competitors. Let me just put it that way. Netflix needs competitors. Netflix is a monopoly and it is engaging of social engineering. And uh, if the market is always best, you know, I mean, Netflix is pushing a social agenda. Um, so there you go. All right. Um, the anti-work trend on Reddit. What is that? What is the anti-work trend on Reddit? What is their argument? I mean, you can't have, um, you can't have a society without work. So like, what is that? What are their, what is their argument? Is this like the anarchist anti, the end of work, the anarchist thing or something? I don't understand what they're, I don't, I haven't followed Reddit and I don't know what the anti-work stuff on Reddit is. I mean, nobody likes to work, right? But then again, if you can find work that is um, rewarding, or you can feel proud of what you do, uh, that's, you know, that's very different. But a lot of people, they're, they're very alienated from their labor, right? They're selling their time to their employer, um, you know, and that's, that's work under capitalism. So there you go. All right. Internal dynamics of the Communist Party USA in its prime years. Well, look, the Communist Party in its prime years, the 1930s was the height of their influence. The late 30s, probably during the Popular Front period, was the height of their, their influence. But, you know, the Communist Party, they, they, had, they did amazing things during that time. They did amazing things uh, during that period in terms of the labor movement, the sit-down strike wave, the anti-fascist work they did, the anti-racist work they did, um, you know, for the unemployed, and they did amazing things. So you you don't want to be too critical of them. There was, you know, William Z. Foster uh, was the labor militant uh, who had been the Communist Party's leader and was like the dynamic leader of the Communist Party. He had a heart attack and after his 1932 presidential campaign, and uh, Earl Browder stepped up to kind of take on the leadership role. And Earl Browder and Foster did not like each other. Uh, you know, Earl Browder was very much, um, you know, was much more of a middle-class reformist, um, whereas William Z. Foster was a labor union guy. William Z. Foster's reputation was as a, a roughneck. They call them roughneck radicals, right? And it was wobblies, union guys, working-class people who were tough, uh, who got stuff done. Earl Browder, on the other hand, it was much more the intellectuals and the, um, you know, the Hollywood actors and the college professors and the, uh, you know, the Broadway playwrights and the musicians and the, you know, that it was much more that middle class trend. Okay. Browder, Browder was much more about middle class, anti-fascist, popular front stuff. William Z. Foster was much more about labor militancy. And Browder very much, you know, the Communist Party was a big organization in those years. It had, I mean, influence over millions of people. So Browder was a very powerful man. And Browder was constantly trying to control and kind of suppress, um, you know, uh, was trying to suppress William Z. Foster. So there was that going on. The other thing, though, that, that must be pointed out, right? And I mean, if you read Nelson Peary, his autobiography, which is, you know, the second one, which is called Black Radical, there's Black... Black Fire, which is his first, the first volume, but then Black Radical, which is the second volume of Nelson Peary's autobiography. He describes in 1948 uh, at the state convention of the Communist Party in Minnesota, he describes how, you know, he was in the Communist Party and 
Earl Browder had just been kicked out of the party and they're having resolutions. They're voting on resolutions. And they had a resolution to honor Tito. And so all the resolutions, they're having, you know, all the resolutions of the Communist Party are all being automatically, unanimously voted for, right? And it's like, and all of us vote, you know, to honor the, and, they, and you know, resolution to honor Stalin, unanimous. Resolution to honor William Z. Foster, unanimous. And so that they have a resolution to honor Tito, the leader of socialist Yugoslavia. So, um, you know, he's new. He doesn't quite get how these things work. So they have a resolution to honor Tito. And he raises his hand and, and says, um, well, no, I don't want to vote for that. And the room falls silent. And then they take him aside and they say, why don't you want to vote for that? And he says, well, you know, it's, you know, we, some of the stuff Tito is saying is, reminds me of Earl Browder's revisionism or something like that. And they're like, wow. And then they, everyone else votes for it, you know, automatic, you know, it passes. And then they take him aside and they're like, we don't think the party's right for you. You know, I mean, you know, you didn't want to vote for that resolution. But then the next day, the headline in the Daily Worker was Stalin denounces Tito. And so they all just pretended nothing had ever happened. But they were ready to kick him out. And that there was kind of an atmosphere in the Communist Party that developed that was a kind of authoritarian culty atmosphere where it wasn't okay to disagree. And I've been in organizations, the group I was in, the Workers' World Party, I'll just say it, they're just like that, right? We had these internal meetings and every vote was unanimous and every vote was unanimous. And if you voted wrong, someone took you aside and said, that was very uncomradely of you to do that. You know, um, and that's, that's a way, that's not a healthy way for an organization to function. Um, you know, but the Communist Party was like that because it was... It was very much an organization. Uh, it, it was very much, it was a lot of people. It was like military kind of. It was a lot of people fighting for their lives. A lot of very poor people. I, in the 1930s, there, was, there were many thousands of people whose entire livelihoods depended on the Communist Party. And on top of that, and on top of the fact that their livelihoods depended on it, uh, they were also, you know, they were also very poor. I mean, they were, they wasn't very much of a livelihood, you know? I mean, they talked about a lot of Communist Party members would survive by selling the Daily Worker. They used to talk about in Brooklyn, in New York City in the 1930s, every day somebody knocked on your door and tried to sell you the Daily Worker. And why did they do that? Because they got to keep half the money. Right. It was like, I mean, it was like it was it was an organization of lots of very, very poor people, lots of immigrants, um, lots of non-English speakers who were desperately poor. And, you know, and they were fighting for their lives. And this was the army that they were fighting in, the Communist Party, the unemployment councils, the, I mean, the end of the labor unions. And as a result of that, um, you know, they you know, they needed to, um, you know, they needed to, you know, to, you know, kind of, you know, be authoritarian. And then, you know, you add to that McCarthyism and all of that, and that, unfortunately, an atmosphere kind of developed in the Communist Party where, you know, it, and that was one of the, the internal dynamics of the Communist Party that people, people who were around it in those years describe, right? That I think there was a documentary where the woman says, if someone disagreed, right, the, the magazine of the Communist Party was called Political Affairs. And so if somebody disagreed with something, they'd say, hey, I don't agree with that. They, someone would turn to them and say, did you read the article in Political Affairs? You know, and it was kind of like, you know, there was, it was, it was not a group that had wide ranging debate and discussion. Now, I don't know if they're like that today or not. I'm not inside the Communist Party. I don't know what goes on. And they, it may be that now they do have wide ranging debate. I mean, people tell, people tell me things, I hear this and that. So I don't even know. And, 
you know, whatever. But that was a flaw that they had. And that contributed, you know, when the, the secret speech happened, the 1956 secret speech happened, um, that caused a problem because they, you know, a lot of the people in the Communist Party had built the Soviet Union up to be infallible in their minds. They thought the Soviet Union was heaven on earth. Soviet Union was could do no wrong. It was heaven on earth. And then Khrushchev came along and basically said, oh, everything they said about Stalin is true. And uh, that that was too much for people, right? That, you know, when you set up an either or like that, when you make everything completely black and white, the Soviet Union had ma- amazing achievements, but it also had big problems, right? You know, Stalin had many great achievements in terms of industrializing the USSR, defeating the Nazis, raising people out of poverty, industrializing the country. You know, I mean, Stalin did a lot of good stuff, but there were hard times. The the late, the the great terror, they call it the late, you know, that period was very bad. And every historian agrees, even the most staunch defender of Stalin will admit there were a lot of people who ended up in gulags who shouldn't have been there. Um, A lot of people ended up in gulags who shouldn't have been there. And, uh, and that, you know, that, that indicates that there was a, there was obviously a big problem during those years and, you know, and that there were, there were problems and that the Soviet Union wasn't heaven on earth. China's not heaven on earth. Vietnam is not heaven on earth. Cuba, Venezuela, these socialist countries have problems, folks. They have big problems. They tend to have a bureaucracy that develops out of necessity. Uh, and that, that bureaucracy will have bureaucratic privilege. On top of that, um, you know, there tends to be inequality, right? Lenin himself in the book State and Revolution, he says that in socialism, inequality and unjust inequality will persist. There is inequality in socialist countries, right? There's racism in socialist countries. Don't think there's not. They do a lot to fight against it, you know, but there is is ethnic bigotry. There's racism in socialist countries. So the problem was that a lot of people in the Communist Party, this atmosphere developed where they couldn't really talk about the Soviet Union in, in with a clear-headed manner. It was like the Soviet Union is heaven on earth, and if you have a problem with that, why, you're a traitor, you're a, you're a traitor. So then 1956 came along, right? Um, and 1956, Khrushchev got up and said, oh, yeah, all the, all the stuff they said about Stalin was true. And as a result of that, a lot of people are like, well, F this shit, I'm getting out of here. Right, and they lost a lot of their membership in 1956. But when you build an atmosphere that's that, you know, it's totalism, right? It's all or nothing. Um, you know, if you build an atmosphere where it's all or nothing, all you have to do is show that it's not all, and then people will take nothing, right? You have to you have to understand nuance. The Soviet Union had problems. The Soviet Union had difficulties. There were different, you know, there were flaws, and and we have to understand that. Um, how did Khrushchev achieve power after Stalin died? All right. Okay. You know, and and so it's important to be clear-headed. And the, and the kind of the authoritarian atmosphere um, that, that Nelson Peary describes was a result of, of it was, it was, it was, a, it had problems, right? Um, so there you go. Achieve power. All right. All righty. Um, so there you go. Um so there you go. All right. Next question. Uh, Jay Lovestone. Jay Lovestone was a leader of the of the Communist Party in the 1920s. Um, uh, his real name, I'm actually, I was reading a biography of him the other day. Uh, his real name was Jacob, what is it? Jacob Lieberman or something like that. Um, you know, his family were from, uh, from Europe. Um, and, um, 
you know, he was from New York. He grew up in New York City. Uh, he was a communist. He was a boxer uh, and he would box for money. That was a way to make money. He was kind of a bigger, big, strong guy with blonde hair. Um, and he was a member of the Communist Party from the early years. Um, and, uh, you know, he was the right oppositionist, right? The Trotskyites were the left opposition. That was James Cannon was the leader of the Trotskyites. James Cannon, Max Schachtman, Martin Aburn, uh, you know, Farrell Dobbs, those were the Trotskyites who got kicked out. And then there was also Jay Lovestone. And Jay Lovestone, his faction, they were the American exceptionalists. They said that Marx's laws didn't apply to the United States, that U.S. capitalism was the exception. Basically, what happened was this. So in 1928, they had the Sixth World Congress of the Communist International in 1928. All the communists of the world gathered in Moscow, and Stalin had become the leader of the Soviet Union. He defeated Bukharin, right? First he defeated Trotsky, then he defeated Bukharin. So at the Sixth World Congress, they reoriented the global communist movement um, around Stalin's political line. And that was the line that they called the Third Period. At that Congress, they announced that, that after the Russian Revolution, there had first been the period of upheaval, where there was a re revolution in Hungary, and there was a revolution in Germany, and there was a revolution in other places. That was the first, the upheaval. That was the first period. And then there was the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, the period of capitalist stabilization, right? And that was, that was what happened then. That was the second period. But then they argued that it's starting in 1928, and they were right. They saw the Great Depression coming. 1929 had not happened. This is 1928, Sixth World Congress. Stalin announced that at that point, they were entering the third period, which would be the period of capitalist collapse and the period of, this, you know, of the rise of socialism, right? They saw the Great Depression coming. They understood economics. So they said, we're entering the third period. And because of the third period, they said the main enemy in the third period was going to be social democrats because social democrats would try to hold off the revolution, right? They preach socialism, but they practice fascism, right? So that was the third period. And during the third period, right, um, it was necessary to fight with the social democrats. Jay Lovestone said that the theory of the third period did not apply to the United States, that the USA was the exception that, that it didn't apply to the United States. So Stalin accused his faction, the Lovestone faction, of being American exceptionalists. And that's where the phrase American exceptionalism comes from. So Jay Lovestone was kicked out of the Communist Party. That's Yes, Chaya, that is where the term comes from. American exceptionalism was Stalin's term, you know, and so they were kicked out of the Communist Party. So then they had their own organization for a few years, and it was called the Communist Party parenthesis, opposition. Uh, that was what they were called. And Bertram Wolf uh, was a, a leader of them. Uh, Bertram J. Wolf and J. Lovestone. But they mainly were labor union bureaucrats. That was the thing. The real reason that J. Lovestone didn't agree with the third period was because his entire career had been building up alliances inside of labor unions. He'd worked inside the labor unions to build up these secret kind of alliances and factions with leaders of the American Federation of Labor. <clears throat> Stalin, with the third period line, was saying the American Federation of Labor, because it was run by social Democrats and wasn't revolutionary, needed to be fought against. And Jay Lovestone wasn't going to follow that line. 
Because if he fo- followed that line, that would make him have to lose all the alliances he had built. Um, so he, he wasn't going to follow that. So, you know, for a while, Jay Lovestone had his own group called the Communist Party Opposition. And they, you know, they published a newspaper and they were a communist organization, but they mainly functioned kind of secretly inside of labor unions. Um, and they, you know, they were not the Communist Party. Um, and then, you know, later the Communist Party opposition started becoming like allies of allies of the whatever, you know, whoever was fighting the Communist Party inside the labor movement, that's they would go with the Lovestoneites. Right. The Lovestoneites were, you know, were kind of used by the enemies of the Communist Party in the United Auto Workers and in other labor unions as the anti-communist group. Right. Lovestone knew the communists. He'd been a top communist for a while. And his people, they were like an anti, anti-communist faction within the labor unions. And I think around the time of World War II, they just dissolved. They stopped being communists. They were just Jay Lovestone's group of friends, basically. They were all these labor union activists who were friends with Jay Lovestone. Jay Lovestone was a very charismatic guy, and he had a group of friends, and they were just Jay Lovestone's group of friends who worked in labor unions. Um, and then after World War II, Jay Lovestone was hired by the CIA to run their trade union work. Um, you know, uh, and because he was an anti-communist and the CIA set up the International Federation of Free Trade Unions, which was an association of anti-communist trade unions around the world. It was run by the CIA. Uh, the United Auto Workers set up something called the Solidarity Center, which is an, an NGO that's run by the National Endowment for Democracy that runs labor unions around the world that are anti-communist. And Jay Lovestone was the director of all of this. Um, and the height, the biggest thing that Jay Lovestone did was the Solidarność, uh, the Solidarity Anti-Communist Union in Poland. He was very key in having setting that up with Brzezinski. Um, and that Jay Lovestone, you know, when he was young, in his 20s, he was writing books and giving speeches as a communist. But as he got older, he faded into obscurity. You can't find photographs of him. And he was very much doing intelligence. He became basically an intelligence. He started out as a communist. Then he became a labor union bureaucrat. And then in the later years of his life, he became a CIA operative, basically. And he was the CIA labor union guy. And he did CIA manipulations. And, you know, he died. But but actually, uh, what's interesting is some of the stuff that he did with the labor unions that were CIA affiliated probably paved the way for the color revolutions, right? Soros and all of that kind of comes out of of that Jay Lovestone stuff. And that's why it's important to understand the late Cold War. It all It's all connected, folks. It's all connected. We talk about Brzezinski on here. We talk about Soros on here. We talk about, uh, you know, now we're talking about Jay Lovestone. Um, you know, but they were the right opposition. So there you go. That's Jay Lovestone. I'll probably know more about this when I finish reading this biography, but that's, that's Jay Lovestone, right? He was just, he was a, but here's the thing. This is what I think. If the Communist Party had been able to like, break with Lovestone, but they'd been able to do it in a way that didn't make him their enemy, think how different history could have been, right? And, you know, imagine if the Communist Party had said, okay, you don't agree with us, but you have your your labor union federation or whatever. Um, Maybe you can just, um, you know, be our friend. And, yeah, I mean, you know, and that's one of the problems with communist groups. It's one of the problems with democratic centralism is that when someone quits your group, they become your enemy, right? Um, you know, they talk about the narcissism of small differences, right? This is a Freudian concept. The person that you fight with 
the most tends to be the person who's the most like you. This applies to countries. Countries tend to fight with countries that are the most like them. Uh, you know, that individuals, right? The person that you're going to have the most arguments with is the person whose personality is the closest to yours. Um, and with communist groups, right? When I was in the Workers' World Party, the group we absolutely hated was the PSL. Why? Because they were just like us. They was the exact same political group. They did the exact same thing we did. And that's why we hated them. We obsessively hated PSL. PSL obsessively hated us. And it was just like, you know, it was like there were groups that were completely opposite of what we believed. And it was like, who cares? All right. Yeah, whatever. You know, but it's like this group that's just like us and has the exact same views. That's who we hate. And like Jay Lovestone, right? Jay Lovestone, right? I, you know, he broke with, you know, they, it was this all or nothing, right? He broke with the Communist Party. And so he couldn't just become like, you know, he couldn't just become, uh, you know, their, their um, you know, he couldn't just become, okay, someone who's friends with the Communist Party. Um, you know, hope you're doing, oh, thank you, Adam. Thank you very much. Um, you know, he couldn't just become, you know, he couldn't just be like, okay, well, I'm not in the Communist Party anymore, but I'm your friend. No, no, no. It had to turn into this, you know, he was their enemy. And so he ended up being a very effective American intelligence operator. He became an anti-communist labor boss. And then later he became a very effective uh, intelligence uh, officer. And again, he was somebody who was very skilled, a very skilled organizer and all that. Imagine if he had stayed, if the communists had somehow kept him as their, their ally, history might be different. But unfortunately, the way democratic centralism has worked, you're with us or against us. And that is a problem. And that's why I'm not forming a new party. If I were to form a new party, everyone everyone who's in a party, I would have to be their enemy. I don't want to do that, right? This isn't working, folks. If the situation changes in 24 hours, the tactics must also change in 24 hours. And I'm just telling you, folks, that, that the way communists have been operating in the United States for the past few decades doesn't work. And we need to find a way that, uh, you know, that, we, you know, I mean, we need to we need to find a better way of organizing. A think tank is a little more serious than a party, I think, at this point. So that's my opinion. All right. Postmodernism. Postmodernism is the idea that uh, deconstruction is the most uh, is the highest good. Right. Um, you know, postmodernism is the idea that there is no grand narrative of humanity. Right. That any attempt to create a grand narrative of humanity or a grand ethical system uh, or, a, or a prevailing ideology is somehow totalitarian. Um, and that the way the truth is arrived at is by deconstructing prevailing narratives, highlighting marginalized voices and taking apart uh, the beliefs that hold societies together. Um, that's postmodernism. And postmodernism can use Marxism because Marxism deconstructs the mythology of the West. Um, but at the end of the day, postmodernism only deconstructs. It does not build. And because of that, it leads to a place of confusion and existential angst. And it is, it is not helpful, right? Um, but no, postmodern... Postmodern neo-Marxists. I'm Jordan Peterson. Postmodern neo-Marxist is an oxymoron. Marxism is an ideology and postmodernism is anti-ideology. Postmodernism is deconstruction. Marxism is a constructive and fundamentally optimistic ideology. I actually, well, never mind. I'll talk about that another time. All right. Angriest I've ever been in my life. I don't want to discuss that on here. I know what that is. I, uh, there's a moment that comes to mind, but I am not going to discuss it on here. I'm going to maintain my privacy, right? 
as much as I like to tell little stories on here about life and all of that, I'm not going to spill my guts on here, right? I have a private life. I'm married. I have parents. I have siblings. I have a sibling. Uh, you know, I've lived in different places. I've been in different relationships. I'm not going to talk about every detail of my personal life on here because it wouldn't be appropriate. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it wouldn't be appropriate. And, you know, I mean, look, I mean, I, I'm on here to talk politics. I'm on here to talk world events, but I'm not on here to talk about, you know, you're asking me the angriest time I've ever been in my life. I would have to tell you about relationships I've had with people. I would have to tell you about relatives. I'd have to tell you about, and I'm just not going to do that, right? Every so often I will allude to it and maybe offer some wisdom. I'm okay with that. But no, I mean, I mean, no privacy, folks, privacy, right? Privacy is, is important. And, um, you know, you can be inappropriate, right? You can be inappropriate sometimes. And, uh, you know, I try to try to keep it at a higher level. I don't talk about my sex life on here. I don't talk about, you know, relationships. I don't talk about my family members. Um, you know, I might vaguely refer to something, but I don't say someone's name when I do it. I try to say it in a way where I don't reveal who the person is because, you know, you got to do that, right? And it's not just me, right? It's not just my privacy, right? It's also the privacy of the person that I'm talking about right? What if they don't want their, you know, they had a fight with what, you know, it's like, you're asking me the angriest I've ever been. So imagine that the angriest I've ever been is a fight I had with somebody. Well, I would be revealing that, but what if the person watching it, right? I mean, what if there's other people who know about it? I'd be kind of revealing something about them. So you gotta, you gotta, on some level, there's gotta be a balance. Now, obviously none of us have real privacy nowadays, right? The NSA is listening to our phones, you know, they're reading our emails and, the end of the day with, you know, your cell phones in your pocket or whatever, you don't really have any privacy. But for the most part, you know, for the most part, you should try to, you should try to, you know, within reason, within reason, um, you know, keep some boundaries. I mean, there, you know, I mean, we, we talk about touchy stuff on here. We talk about emotions. We talk about psychology, but within reason. And, and, you know, I get a lot of messages from people. I'll be real. I'll just be real. Okay. I get a lot of messages from people telling me very personal stuff about themselves. And I, you have the right to do that. And I'm never going to tell you, don't send me this. You know, I mean, I, I, if you're harassing me or something, I might do that. But that said, you know, you know, I, I respect your privacy. Um, you're allowed to send me stuff. People tell me all kinds of stuff. They send me messages and that, you're putting yourself out here. People want to talk to you. You're allowed to do that. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, you know, think about what you send me too. Maybe you don't want me to know all of that, right? I mean, uh, maybe you don't want to share that with me, right? Think, you know, maybe you want to keep some things separate from your politics, but I respect, you can send me whatever you want within reason, but, you know, it may not be what you want to do, right? So there you go, right? There you go. Next question, uh, lower levels of struggle and higher levels of struggle. I don't quite know what you're getting at, David, uh, but I think what you're getting at is that there are little things that you can do, like handing out leaflets like putting up posters, like, um, you know, and that they seem like they're not glorious. They're not marching into battle, but they make a huge contribution. I used to talk about being a Jimmy Higgins. You can Google that, Jimmy Higgins, being a Jimmy Higgins, doing the little bits of work, you know, and some of those, those tasks are so important, so important. Handing out leaflets, Right? Putting up posters, um, you know, uh, arranging for things to, to happen, you know, cooking food for the, you know, there's a gathering of communists and someone's got to cook the food, you know, and that, that these, 
you know, you might call them lower levels of struggle, but without them, there is no struggle. And that we shouldn't try to, you know, try to act as if some, you know, I mean, I, you know, I try to do as much of that as I can. I can't do as much as I used to, but I'm out with the John Brown volunteers. I've distributed many buttons. I've distributed many palm cards. I've been showing them the little, little tricks I've learned over the years. Just tonight, I was showing them how to do something. Um, you know, and and that is important. And people, that kind of work is very important. And we shouldn't we shouldn't belittle that. And again, I think you know, again, so I opened the stream tonight. I opened the stream tonight by talking about how important it is to support those workers that are out on strike right now, to support the John Deere workers, the Kellogg's workers, the nurses. It is so important. It is so important, right? And and stuff like that goes a long way. It goes a long way. Yeah. Um, okay, Red. Very good. I'm glad. I'm glad I answered your question. Very good. All right. Um, Russia-China relations. Well, you know, Russia... Um, Russian-China relations at this point are not ideological. The Chinese Communist Party is a Marxist Communist Party. Russia is not guided by Marxism at this time. Um, you know, um, but, you know, their relationship is largely based on economics. China is an industrial powerhouse, and it does not have very much oil and natural gas. Russia, on the other hand, is a huge energy-producing country. And they are kind of a match made in heaven. China needs lots of natural gas. Russia needs someone to sell their natural gas to. And they, they're right next to each other. And they're both raising themselves up. You know, they're both countries that industrialized in the 20th century. And they both have economies that are centered around the state. And so they kind of work together. Culturally, they're very different from each other. Um, there are, and there are differences. When I've been to Russia, I've heard people, you know, criticize China. I've heard Chinese folks I know criticize Russia. That happens, but uh, at the same time, you know, I mean that that, and that's you know that's going to be why it's harder to pull them apart, right? During the Cold War, Russia and China were pulled apart from each other because China was still deeply poor in the 1950s and it was depending on Soviet aid. And the Soviets felt like, hey, if we're giving you this aid, you need to take political guidance from us. Um, and Mao was this third world revolutionary who believed in global communist revolution. And Khrushchev was a, you know, wanted to have detente with the West, wanted to make a deal with the imperialists, and they weren't seeing eye to eye. And now, you know, and so, so Russia, the Soviet Union pulled its aid out of China, and China, you know, that was that. But you know, and they had the Sino-Soviet split, 1961. However, however, nowadays, it's not this ideology thing. It's not like Russia is just giving stuff to China or China is just giving stuff to Russia. No, the two countries are both economically developed. They both have strong economies, um, but they, they need each other. Russia needs to sell oil and gas to China. China needs to, you know, needs to buy oil and gas from a country that's not going to mess with them like the United States. Um, so now their relationship and, you know, both of them are, are, you know, building up, you know, you have Vladivostok and the, the Far East Economic Forum, you know, what's going on there. And they both, you know, the, the, the Belt and Road and the Eurasian Economic Union, and they need each other, basically. Russia and China working together. Um, it's not a matter of like my ideology says this is the way to bring communism. It's a matter of both. It's in those countries' interest to work together. And the United States seems to hate both of them. And it seems to be trying to undermine both of them. All right. So someone said about the Council on Foreign Relations, 
linked to the Bilderbergs and linked to the Trilateral Commission. Whoa, okay, all right. I I mean, there's overlap, I think, between those three groups, but they're, I mean, they're different things. Council on Foreign Relations, it started out as the New York Council on Foreign Relations, which used to be the round table group, which was like a think tank established by the, um, you know, the estate of Cecil Rhodes and Lord Milner. Um, and it was like just this, this group of people that study foreign policy and are trying to promote the ideals of the British Empire that eventually became eventually became a think tank and now you got the Council on Foreign Relations. And it's it's a very big foreign policy think tank in the United States that directs the intelligence apparatus and directs, you know, it directs US foreign policy really. Right. The Bilderbergs, I don't even I don't I don't know much about the Bilderbergs. The Trilateral Commission, the Trilateral Commission was in the 70s. That was after the USA was defeated in Vietnam. Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski went to the Rockefellers and and with the assistance of the Rockefellers, they formed a think tank called the Trilateral Commission. Um, so the Council on Foreign Relations is much more broad than that. The CFR, um, you know, like I said, it's been around a long time. It's very big. And yes, yeah, Henry Kissinger and and um and Zbigniew Brzezinski were both in the CFR, but the Trilateral Commission was a very specific academic like think tank that was formed in the 70s. And really the Carter administration was largely Trilateral Commission people. Um, so yeah, I mean, the Trilateral Commission, there's a lot of documents, but it was basically USA lost the Vietnam War, US foreign policy was being rethought, and the Rockefellers you know, paid Kissinger and Brzezinski to get all these academics together and rethink U.S. foreign policy. And they did. And that's the Jimmy Carter presidency. And that's, you know, that's the Eastern establishment. That's that weird left. And so there's a continuity there, I guess. But, but you know, it's like, we you know, the, th the thing is, like, as you, you want to not talk about this stuff, you, you want to notice the relationships. Okay. You want to notice the relationships, but you don't want to think of it as like this vast cabal. They're all in a plot together because there are differences. You know, there's overlap, but like, you know, Israel is a very important part of U.S. foreign policy at this point. Brzezinski is a very important U.S. foreign policy strategy. Brzezinski and Israel didn't like each other. I mean, I'm sure if you'd asked Brzezinski, he would say like, oh, I support Israel. But at the end of the day, Brzezinski was pretty, you know, the Israelis didn't trust him. And Brzezinski didn't like the Israelis. And Brzezinski was spending his life running around recruiting anti-Semites, right? I mean, the Saudis, you think they liked Israel? You know, you think the, the you know, the Polish fascist elements that he was working with, you know, you think that the Eastern European anti-communists? Brzezinski spent his life running around recruiting anti-Semites and recruiting Muslims to do the dirty work of the United States. Um, whereas Israel, uh, Israel, you know, considers itself to be the Jewish state. Um, and Israel and Brzezinski didn't like each other. Um, and that's like, but they were on the same side, right? I mean, it's like, but again, this is not like a big cabal. You have to not think of this as a big, vast plot, right? That there are different entities, right? There's the Eastern establishment, right? There's the, the big four super major oil companies. There's Silicon Valley, um, you know, um, you know, there are different factions in the ruling class. There are different entities. There are different orbits. Um, but you, you, it's not like, there. you know, like there is no they. 
right? And if there was a they, if there was some group of, you know, and this is the problem with conspiratorial logic, if there was some shady group, if there was some Illuminati that actually controlled everything, we wouldn't be having all the problems we're having. At the end of the day, the problem is they, there is no they, right? There is no central power. There isn't one. There's a lot of wealthy, powerful people fighting with each other who are trying to make profits and, and there's the anarchy of production at the end of the day. The problem is not that the world is all controlled by a shady elite. It's the opposite, is that there are elites who just want to make money and have no long-term interest and are fighting with each other. Um, so there you go. All right. Putin is an example of anti-imperialism is socialism. Uh, well, they, Russia does not consider itself to be a socialist country. Uh, they, they argue that they, um, you know, that while they're critical of capitalism and that they believe in the Eastern Orthodox, you know, Christian values and that they are proud of the Soviet Union's achievements, they also, they don't compare themselves to be, um, you know, they don't, they don't consider themselves to be a socialist and definitely not a Marxist country. When companies bait and switch on compensation to expect, they break the NA, the, the non-aggression principle. This is what you tell ANCAPs and they think they're rich and honest. Okay, all right, I, all right. I, I don't know what that means, but there you go. But yeah, Russia doesn't consider itself to be a socialist country, but they're at odds with the imperialists and there is a huge amount of state control and ownership in, in the country. And that, you know, that, that again, you know, I wrote City Builders and Vandals because not all of this Cold War analysis, you know, uh, you know, th this, this, well, anyway, I, I'm not going to talk about that tonight. I'll talk about that another night. But this idea that there's like bourgeois nationalism on the one side in the developing world and communism on the other, and there's like a river of blood between them is not true. Okay. And that bourgeois nationalism often leads to socialism and socialism often comes to power because it's aligned with bourgeois nationalism. And there's kind of a sliding scale. All right. In a lot of cases, you have anti-imperialist states, some of whom are very socialist, some of whom are very bourgeois nationalist. But at the end of the day, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to draw the line of where bourgeois nationalism starts and where socialism begins. You know, uh, you know, it, it's very hard to draw that line. Um, you know, and, and that, you know, the way socialists have taken power is by being at the leaders of a united front against imperialism. And that, um, yeah, the idea Trotskyites especially have this, this idea, there's this magical class line. There's this magical class line that between the communist party of China and the KMT, there's a river of blood. One's a bourgeois party and one is a, well, no, actually Dr. Sun Yat-sen joined the Communist International as an observer. Um, the Communist Party, Mao was actually an alternate member of the KMT's National Committee of the, you know, and the Communist Party, they grew rapidly because they joined the KMT. So it's like, I mean, it's, there's not, it's not, it's not as clear. And when people get into that and it's like, well, there's the class, there's the workers state and there's the bourgeois nationalist anti-imperialist regime. It's not that simple. And if you look at the Ba'ath countries, those were clearly socialist countries. You look at Libya, that was clearly a socialist country. Now, there are other countries where it's not as clear, okay? There are other anti-imperialist states where it is not as clear, but, um, you know, but, but this idea that there is just communism and socialism on the one side and then bourgeois nationalism on the other, I don't, there's, it's a sliding scale. Once you're fighting the imperialists, you can't be completely capitalist. And the working class becomes very essential. You know, Che Guevara, there's a quote from Che Guevara where he said that the, 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 the national bourgeoisie of the developing world is too weak. 
to fight the imperialists on their own. They depend on the proletariat, and that's true. Um, but because the national bourgeoisie depends on the proletariat to fight the, you know, the, the imperialists, then that raises the question of, you know, you know, Venezuela started out as a bourgeois nationalist, you know, kind of move, but then eventually became socialism. And so, and then you can look, there's also a lot of like socialist countries, you know, countries that were anti-imperialist socialist countries that then as, you know, things, you know, moved in another direction, they ended up not changing property relations very much. So, you know, South Africa is an example of that, right? Whereas South Africa, there's not, you know, hasn't really been a change in property relations. It started out as a communist led struggle, but then it just kind of, you know, the material forces weren't there. And so, I mean, it's, again, when it comes to, when it comes to, bourgeois nationalism and anti-imperialism and straight up socialism it's not i i maintain that there is a sliding scale okay and that you can't really be anti-imperialist without mobilizing the working class on the one hand and you can't really be you know you can't really be socialist without entering an alliance with other anti-imperialist forces that might not be socialist so it starts to get unclear it starts to get murky and this is why I wrote City Builders and Vandals. And this is why I kind of got out of the Cold War perspective because it's not as clear. It's not as clear. So there you go. Women in communism in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Well, in the 1980s, women, there was literacy campaigns. Women were being taught how to read. And there was huge advances for women under the leadership of the People's Democratic Party in Afghanistan. It was one of the best periods in terms of women's rights, in terms of economic advancement. Um, and the Taliban obviously overturned that. And, um, you know, that's an embarrassing thing. The United States was backing the forces that eventually became the Taliban, um, you know, to, to fight against the Soviet Union, right? So there you go. All right, legacy of Soviet foreign policy. Well, I mean, I would argue that Chinese foreign policy, Russian foreign policy nowadays is very different than Soviet foreign policy. I mean, the Soviet Union very much saw themselves as aligned with the global communist movement. Russia and China don't see themselves that way. They're not, they're not spreading communism. There's no new communist international. They see themselves as trying to improve life in their country and do business. And they want to trade with countries on the basis of win-win cooperation. Um, and Soviet foreign policy was very much, they believed they were spreading communism. Um, and they back, started backing away from that pretty quickly because that's just, you can't do that, right? Every country has to find its own road to socialism. You know, you can't export revolution. You can't do that. You can't do it, right? And Trotsky, you know, that was, you know, they defeated Trotsky. And then later they, the common term was dissolved. And then later, I mean, you, you can't do that. You can't be exporting communism. Every country, every people will have their own road to socialism. Eventually, we may be cooperating on a global level, but but people have to have their own country and their own road to socialism. All right, I'm running out of energy and we still got a huge amount of super chats left, so just gonna keep going. All right, libertarianism is a cult. No, but there are cults within libertarianism, right? Um, some people describe Stefan Molyneux's followers, Freedom Aine Radio is a cult, and they're libertarians, handcaps. Uh, Ayn Rand, uh, the Ayn Rand, uh, what is it called? The Ayn Rand Institute. You know, people argue that they kind of function a little bit like a cult. Um, you know, look, cults are a boomer thing. All right. I'll just be real with you. Right. When I was in, um, when I was in, in my little town, I remember in my church, they had the church library 
And I remember there was a book at the church library that had been printed in like 1940, and it was called The Four Major Cults. And it, I opened it, and it was Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Scientists, Mormons, and Seventh, Seventh Day Adventists. And I read, I remember reading that book, and it was like, you know, cults, like, it was like, these are small religious organizations that have fringe beliefs. Um, the meaning of cult, uh, you know, was very different, right? It's in the 70s. In the 1970s, they start talking about, the term cult is a very much of a 1970s kind of thing. Cult refers to the Moonies. It refers to the Hare Krishnas. It refers to, you know, Boomer. Boomer is looking for meaning in his life and has realized that, uh, the you know, the United States isn't the greatest country in the world and the Vietnam War is wrong. And so he's wandering through the world looking for meaning and he finds a spiritual guru who promises him enlightenment. So he sells all of his property and moves in with the spiritual guru and stops speaking to his family members. And this is like a boomer thing. I, I, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses have been around for a long time. Uh, you know, the Mormons have been around for a long time, but the whole, like, what we think of as cults is a very, and people don't do that anymore. Generally, I mean, there's multi-level marketing schemes that people join and get kind of ripped off by. Um, um, I, I don't know what that means, Red Precarian. Uh, there's multi-level marketing schemes. Um, there are fanatical political organizations. Um, but like, you know, cults, I mean, like QAnon is not a cult. It's a conspiracy theory. There are many different interpretations of QAnon. Right now, there are maybe cults within QAnon. There may be individual gurus of QAnon who like have a charismatic following and demand the absolute loyalty of their followers. But QAnon itself is not a cult because there's a million different interpretations. It's, it's a conspiracy. It's a belief system, I guess. It's a conspiracy theory, right? Libertarianism. I wouldn't call it a cult because there's again, there's so many different interpretations of libertarianism. It's a set of concepts that are wrong. Now, I some people say Molyneux is kind of like a cult and that he tells you to not talk to your, to cut off your family and, you know, isolate yourself. Okay. I can see that kind of, but, uh, the cults are very much, that's a 1970s thing. It's a 1970s thing largely. I mean, and they, people don't do that anymore. I mean, people, people don't do the cult thing anymore. It's just not a, it's a part of like 1970s. It's like after the 1960s political upsurge, there was a huge amount of confusion in the United States and in the West about what does it all mean? What is the meaning of life? You know, obviously, you know, once you refute the ideology, right? It was, you know, in the 50s, it was red, white, and blue and, and all of that. So people were looking for stuff. And, um, you know, a lot of those groups are still around, Scientology, the Moonies, groups like that, but they're not going anywhere. Um, they're not, I, oh, I didn't, I've never heard that red procurement. I mean, they're, yeah, they're not going anywhere. And people people don't do that. People our age, right? I'm 33. We don't do that. We don't we don't join Scientology. We don't join the Moonies, right? We don't we we don't do that, right? I mean, it's just the cult cult thing is just that's and but now there's like this over the top cult scare and cult obsession in the media because it's like they're afraid that like illiberalism will emerge. Right. Then it's going to. Right. I mean, liberalism is breaking down and collapsing. So people are going to become more and more illiberal. And so they're trying to use the like 1970s cult awareness stuff to fight 
illiberalism. Well, there's always going to be illiberalism, right? People throughout human history have always had ideologies. They've always had religions. They've always had causes they want to fight for. They've always had truths they believe in. So there's always going to be a liberalism. But the cult thing, that's a 70s thing, right? Go, if you want to watch, I mean, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, there's a movie from the 80s, I think. Um, it's like early 80s movie where it's like, you know, some high school gymnast is recruited into a cult. And, he, you know, it's just, it's, this is like 80s stuff, 70s and 80s. That That's, people don't do that anymore. Scientology is on its way out, right? Moonies are on their way out. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, people are, people can form in groups. I mean, conspiracy theories are big on the internet, but yeah, the cults are not a thing anymore. I mean, they used to be, right? But even you look at the various cults, they're dying. The Moonies are dying. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Scientology, Scientology is much, it's got a lot more to lose, but it's, it's declining. They're not recruiting people at this point. Um, you know, the Hare Krishnas and that's all, you know, again, this was big. This was a big deal in the seventies, seventies. I mean, this is just, it's counterculture. It's still around, but it's all those groups. They're, they're on their way out. They're relics of another time. Um, it was, you know, the cult thing very much refers to when capitalism was at a certain stage. It was at a certain stage of like transition between the late, between the early Cold War and the late Cold War. There was a lot of confusion. And so you had some organizations that were tied to intelligence agencies. There was some CIA mind control experiments and MK Ultra, and there's all kinds of stuff that was going on. But, you know, yes, humans do. There are still obscure religious groups out there. That's true. There are still causes people believe in. Uh, there are still uh, delusional beliefs that people hold on to. Uh, there are still charlatans and con men and liars out there. That, that's absolutely true. There are still hateful bigots out there. That's true, right? You know, but um, as far as the whole like 70s cult thing, that's just, that's not a thing anymore. I mean, the world has kind of moved on. That was a, a culmination of some specific stuff that has been around for a long time. But, but the, whole, the whole cult thing, is a, it's really outdated. It's really outdated. And nowadays, it's like someone in there said blue lives cult. Well, no, blue lives matter is that's, you know, police officers, right? It's like the, the, the thought control and like, you know, thought control and, you know, mind conformity of police officers, you know, and that's, you know, but again, that's a job. That's the state. Is the state a cult? Is the U.S. Army a cult? Right? They they do mind control in the U.S. Army. They do military boot camps and they brainwash people and stuff. But that's they've always done that. That's an army, right? It's not a cult, right? I mean, it's just like this is the cult thing is a '70s thing. It's a '70s thing, and again, we need to talk about things in a more scientific way and not get caught up in you know outdated kind of stuff. The more you look into that stuff, the more you realize that there's nothing there. There's nothing there. I mean, this is, there's groups of people, there's fanatics, there's group conformity, there's attempts to mind control and brainwash people, there's, you know, authoritarianism, there's fringe religious groups, but the, the whole cult thing is kind of outdated. It's kind of outdated. So there you go. Um, all right. Patriotic socialism reclaiming Superman and country music. Well, I have talked about Superman. Superman was was always the left. I mean, Superman. What does he? What do you think "Man of Steel" means in Russian? 
Or how do you say Man of Steel in Russian, right? Uh, that wasn't an accident. Uh, Superman was always supporting labor unions. He was always against racism. Superman has always been a leftist kind of hero. Country music started out, you know, some country music was actually popular front oriented uh, when it started. Like early country music in the 30s was very pro-Roosevelt, very pro-working class. You know, in the 80s, country music gets a lot more conservative. I think, well, really in the 70s, it's anti-hippie, right? Merrill Haggard and kind of the anti-hippie stuff. Walking on the fighting side of me, right? So country music starts to get conservative in like the, the 70s. But, you know, I don't know. I'm not a, I don't know enough about country music, honestly. I'm not a, I, I like some country, I'm liking country music more and more and more as I get older. But, you know, I don't know that much about it. The Dixie Chicks were pretty left wing. Um, so there you go. But, uh, you know, patriotic socialism. All right. Here's the thing about patriotic socialism. And th this is why I don't, like find debating it with people very productive. The point of patriotic socialism is to let people know communists want life to get better in the United States of America. That our program as communists is about making the country better. That's it, right? We need to communicate to the broad masses of working people that our program of dismantling imperialism and moving towards socialism will improve life in the United States. That's what we need to communicate to the broad masses of people. If we actually want to run the government of the United States, we should be communicating to people that us doing so will make life better in the United States. It's not that difficult. People tend to vote for politicians who will improve their lives. So if we want the American people to sympathize with us, we should make clear our goal is to improve their lives. Now, much of the anti-patriotism of the left, you know, the F America, the flag burning, the, this is an evil Euro settler country, does not communicate that. It communicates the opposite. It says, we want to tear things down, we want to destroy things. And it, it communicates a message of hostility to the people that we are aspiring to lead. If we are serious about leading the American people, we need to communicate to them that we are going to work in their best interest. It's pretty politics 101. However, a lot of people are not serious on the internet. They're just having a tantrum and they're mad at their parents and they're mad at U.S. society and they don't want to actually win anybody over. They just want to get their anger out and their emotions and go back to living their lives as they live them. And if that's the case, I can understand why you're not patriotic because, but, but, Again, I'm not asking people to go around, you know, waving the American flag in the streets. I'm not asking people to go around and like call people they don't like un-American. And I'm not, you know, I'm just saying that if we want people in the United States to support us, we need to communicate that our policies will make life better in the United States. It's pretty basic, pretty basic stuff. I, I The fact that I have to explain this makes me furious. It's like it's like the fact that I have to explain this shows how out of touch and fucked up our movement is. And we can do so much better than this. Um, you know, we can do so much better than this as a movement because I mean, if if this is something we like the fact that I have to have this argument with people means that that the people I'm talking to aren't serious. Right? Politicians who are running for I mean, Bernie Sanders was patriotic. You know, he waved flags at his rallies. Um, you know, I mean, sir, Dr. Martin Luther King was patriotic. 
Um, I mean, it's just, again, I'm opposed to racism. I'm opposed to national chauvinism. I hate that. This is the greatest country in the world. I hate that chauvinism. But at the end of the day, if we we want to win the broad masses of people to socialism, it is on us to communicate to them that socialism will make their lives better. And if we don't think socialism will make their lives better, we really should give up trying to win them over, shouldn't we? So there you go. That's that's all I'm saying. And I don't and the fact that that's a controversial message and people think that means I'm an I'm a Nazi or I'm a white supremacist or something. I There you go. All right. Cool. The CIA plots to nuke Russia in World War post World War II. Well, the CIA doesn't have the authority to nuke anybody. The president has the authority to nuke people. So I don't I don't know what you're referring to there. I haven't heard about CIA plotting to nuke Russia. I the president would have the authority to do that. Um, Douglas MacArthur threatened to drop atomic bombs on China. Um, and, um, you know, that got fired for it because he didn't ask the president. Lenin's new economic policy versus market socialism. Well, I think the NEP, the new economic policy of Lenin, was a form of market socialism. It was one form of it. There are different forms, but it was the use of market mechanisms to improve socialism. So there you go. When will Biden step down? I don't know. He ain't doing too good now, is he? Um, and he's getting older and the polls, he's sinking in the polls and they got inflation. And I mean, he's, I'm telling you, doesn't look good for Biden, but enjoy him while he lasts. Enjoy him while he lasts because what comes after him, Kamala Harris or Trump again, will be worse. And I didn't vote for Biden, but I'm telling you, uh, you know, I mean, we, we really... There's a lot of political space right now. There's a lot of freedom to organize politically and talk about ideas. Um, and things could get bad real quick, right? And I'm just telling you, the amount of authoritarianism in society could really rapidly increase. Right now with Biden, you know, everyone's just kind of, it's like, okay, Trump is over. Where do we go from here? And there's an opening where we can talk now. Um, Trump again or Kamala Harris? Maybe not. So there you go. Uh, does America's hawkish policy to China prove it's not capitalist? Not necessarily, right? In theory, one could argue that the USA was hawkish towards China because it was a, a rival or something like that. But but you're right, right? I mean, I mean, in a way, you're right, right? Because, you know, Mike Pompeo, he tweeted out, China is a Marxist-Leninist state. I mean, you know, they know they know it's not a free market economy. And Hillary Clinton has said it is not a free market economy. I mean, anyone who looks at China knows that it's not it's not capitalist, okay? It's not a free market society by any means. And the people who think argument China is an argument for privatizing everything don't know what they're talking about. Will I ever patch things up with Jason? No, because I mean I doubt it because I gave him a million chances. Many times he tried to fight with me and I just ignored him. Many times and this time, he was just so desperate to have a fight with me. I mean, I, we didn't agree. I mean, I, I disagreed with Jason about third worldism, patriotism, and he 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 would make videos that were clearly you know attacks on me. Socialism with Chinese American characteristics is bullshit. You know, he would, do, and I just would ignore it. And I figured, okay, you know, at least you know we're both anti-imperialist. Um, 
Okay, Bob, I've answered that one before, but I'll I'll answer it shorter than I normally do. You know, I figured we're both anti-imperialist, right? He goes on press TV. I used to do press TV stuff and, you know, whatever. But no, I mean, he just, he wanted to fight with me and he just, he insisted. I just tried to ignore him. And then he makes, makes this big video, Caleb is bad, call him out. And it's just, okay, all right. You know, it's just, and it's unfortunate. And then that's what makes me realize that, you know, when you start to, you know, sometimes I I feel like I, I coddled Jason a little too much, right? I mean, when he started going after me and I would just ignore it, you know, I mean, you know, and it's too bad. I mean, it's too bad. So there you go. It's too bad. Um, it's too bad, um, but, right? Um, it's too bad, but it is what it is. Um, and, uh you know, move on. So there you go. How did Khrushchev achieve power? Well, wasn't there like, so after Stalin died, wasn't there a fight in the Soviet Communist Party, like a rivalry between Molotov and Khrushchev, I believe. And then it, after a while, Khrushchev kind of came to dominate. There was a fight, Molotov. Mol there was like a pro-Stalin, you know, wing of the bureaucracy. And then there was like the Khrushchev wing and there was kind of a power struggle. And then ultimately Khrushchev came to, to dominate. It was the 20th party Congress. There you go. Baba Vakian. Uh, father was a judge in California, Spurgeon of Akin. Um, he was a very, you know, he was a student at Berkeley, University of Berkeley in the early 60s. Um, he was uh, like, he, he ran the Peace and Freedom Party, which was like the electoral group, uh, California election. It's like a third party that's in California. And they, um, you know, they ran Black Panther kind of people for office. Um, eventually he formed something called the Bay Area Revolutionary Union or the, and um, they, they supported the, there was an oil workers strike uh, and he got a whole bunch of like radical, like activist oriented kind of people to go support the oil workers strike. It was like, they were going to get to the working class. Um, you know, the Revolutionary Union, which was like an organization of like Maoists. It was like, it was mainly white people who were sympathetic to the Black Panthers, sympathetic to the Black Panthers, sympathetic to China. We're getting into communism. Um, They're in the Bay Area and they eventually, um, you know, and they went, he toured the country, went around the country, like building up support. And eventually in 1975, they became the RCP. Uh, 76, Mao died. And China's politics started to shift. Uh, so they had a fight and they kicked out the people that were still supporting China, but also, you know, and also wanted to work in the labor movement and such. 1978, 79, the RCP becomes totally run by Avakian. It's his, his group of followers. Uh, he had a death to Deng Xiaoping rally at the White House. Uh, a bunch of, he was arrested and so were a bunch of anarchists and working class neighborhoods. I don't know what that means. So were a bunch of... Um, you know, so were a bunch of, um, um, so were a bunch of RCP people. Um, eventually, a lot of RCP people took a plea bargain, and you know, in, in exchange for him, you know, having the charges dropped against him, he went to France for many years and was kind of leading the RCP from France. Uh, and then he came back to the United States. I think I, I. I assume, I mean, he doesn't tell me where he goes, obviously, but I think he had an event at Riverside Church with Cornell West. And I, I think he's, you know, some of his videos indicate that he's still in the USA. And I don't know. I mean, whatever. And yeah, I mean, he's just, he's the leader of, of an obscure ultra-leftist Maoist sect. 
I mean, I've I've talked about them in much greater detail on other streams. Uh, if you want to watch, um, you want to watch my video uh, Mao and American Socialists. I go over like the Maoist movement and the whole history of it. Um, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, he was a. I mean, he's around. I mean, the RCP, Revcom.us. I mean, they're just they're just an ultra leftist communist group in the United States. And they're historically they've been very visible, uh, speaking in the name of communism and such. So there you go. Anarchists in working class communities. Well, a lot of working class young people call themselves anarcho-capitalists, right? Or are like anti-government. That's very common among like, you know, like a lot of like, you know, working class white people uh, have been taken in by like like, um, you know, like Stefan Molyneux kind of stuff and call themselves anarchists. Um, but as far as anarchists, like in working class communities, I mean, there's a lot of like hipster anarchists, you know, um, you know, and I think there's probably a lot of people that are exploring different ideologies, you know, you know, that are working class that are learning about different ideologies. But as far as working class anarchists, I mean, you know, uh, or anarchists in working class communities, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they exist. So, I mean, I mean, I don't see, I mean, again, you know, there's, I will say in recent years, there has been a real kind of merger between an, uh, anarchism and social democracy, like Vosh, for example. Like, you know, Vosh is a social democrat, but he also, he doesn't even believe in the state controlling the means of production. He believes that there should be independent worker. So it's like his, an, his social democracy has a, like a bunch of anarcho-syndicalist weirdness like mixed into it and that i've noticed that there's a lot of anarchists that are actually social democrats right um you know there's a lot of like people who say i'm like noam chomsky is a great example he's a social democrat at the end of the day but he says he's an anarchist because it sounds more radical at the end of the day he supports voting for democrats he supports labor unions as a democratizing force he thinks we're going to gradually move toward a more democratic that's social democracy but he says he's an anarchist because it sounds more radical or something. There's a lot of that, right? That that anarchists historically they don't vote, um, they boycott elections, uh, they you know they believe in you know building in, you know independent communities that emerge among the wreckage of capitalism. Most people that are anarchists, a lot of them work at NGOs and work at like liberal NGOs for the Democrats. Um, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, they, you know, they campaign for Democrats. They work for the labor bureaucracy, the labor union bosses. Uh, they go around fighting with whoever the, you know, with Republicans. And I mean, a lot of people who call themselves anarchists at the end of the day are really just social Democrats, right? They go around fighting Republicans. They vote for Democrats. They work at liberal NGOs. They follow whatever the latest trendy liberal cause is. They have nose piercings. I mean, they they maybe they have nose piercings or whatever. But at the end of the day, a lot of what they do, um, a lot of what they do uh, is is not that different from what social democrats do. But because it has this kind of like scene flair, because they have the the nose piercing and the tattoos, and they go to rock, punk rock shows, therefore, well, they're radical. They're anarchists. But if you look at who they really are, they're social democrats. They're not. They're not. Anarchists. I mean, it's like, well, they're, well, well, no, I believe in freedom, man. I, I want stateless, no authority. Okay, I got it. But what you do in practice is called social democracy. What you believe is called social democracy. You may dress it up in this, well, eventually you want a world without a government, blah, blah, blah. 
yeah, but what you're doing is, you know, all of us who are anti, who are leftists, we all want a stateless, classless world. The question is, how do we get there? Social Democrats think it gradually just comes from capitalism. Capitalism over the course of a long period just gradually turns into socialism. The movement is everything. The goal is nothing. Communists want to seize political power. And anarchists don't reject politics altogether and want to just build up independent institutions, right? Um, and most people calling themselves anarchists are really social democrats because what they believe is that capitalism, they're involved in the political process, just gradually turning capitalism into socialism. Um, so most people who call themselves anarchists are really social democrats. You know, that's that's really, that's what I would say. I mean, if you're really an anarchist, you'd be building like a cooperative community, you'd be boycotting elections, you'd be, you know, you trying to build a union so the worker can seize their plant or something like that. Anarchists, most anarchists aren't doing that. Most anarchists that I know are just doing what liberals do with a more liberal veneer, uh, with a more like this kind of like performative punk rock aesthetic that goes with it. So therefore it's anarchism. Um, and so... There you go. There you go. And that's, I mean, Noam Chomsky is a great example. I, I, he's a social Democrat, but he says he's an anarchist because it sounds more radical. But anyway, I'm really tired, folks, but it's always a pleasure to interact with you all. You all are very special to me. I really do appreciate, um, you know, interacting with all of you. I look forward to talking to you again soon, hopefully tomorrow night. Um, so on that note, folks, a new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression, that the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night.